Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. This fall, High Theory is participating in the Humanities Podcasting Symposium, organized by the Humanities Podcast Network. If you are a podcaster or avid listener, we invite you to contribute, too. We are looking for presentations on podcasting in the humanities in all shapes and forms, on audiences, teaching, learning, equity, accessibility, knowledge production, and everything else. The symposium will be held entirely virtually on October 15 and 16, 2021. Find details about the Humanities Podcast Network, as well as our full call for contributors for the symposium at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org. We are talking about modernization today in this episode of High Theory with Varsha Venkata Subramanian. Varsha, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Varsha Venkata Subramanian, and I am a historian of development and dams and U.S. foreign policy, mainly with India. And I am a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and I'm in my fourth year. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory. What the heck is modernization? So that is a complicated question. I think you have to begin with thinking about the Enlightenment and 19th century thinking. And so basically in the 19th century and during the Enlightenment, which is even before that, there are European states as well as the American state who are trying to decide what exactly is modernity. And so the modernization that I study or the iteration of it that I study comes about in the late 20th century, specifically after World War II. So after World War II, the United States especially is in this brand new position It is basically the superpower of the world. It has massive economic output. But almost immediately after World War II, there is a conflict of ideology with the Soviet Union, right? And the Soviet Union purports to be in favor of communism, in favor of a proletarian revolution. And the United States sees this as a threat. And so there are theorists, there are political scientists, there are scholars, there are politicians who are basically trying to convince the global South, these newly decolonizing countries, 
what it means to be on the side of the United States, what it means to be modern. And so after 1945, modern states are basically democratic states. They are states that are scientific, that are economically advanced, that are sovereign, that rely on consensual democracy. Uh, But most importantly, they rely on this ideology of rational technology, scientific knowledge. That is the best way to become modern. And so modernization theory basically is this idea that comes about in the 1950s and 1960s, directly opposed to the stages of history that Marxists purport. The final stage of history for states that are not modern or traditional is going to be this age where states have reached consensual democracy, they've reached liberal capitalism, they rely on scientific expertise, and they reject tradition, they reject superstition. Right. You're opening with this opposition between how the Soviet bloc is seeing it progressing into this new time post-World War II and how the U.S. is seeing it. I'm wondering how the rhetoric of modernization in the U.S. at this time is differentiating itself from changes that are happening in Soviet Russia, which are also about massive large-scale scientific revolution, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution. So I think the historian Michael Latham, he wrote this in the introduction to a great book called Staging Growth, which is a collection of essays about modernization in the Cold War. And he put it the best way, right? He was basically talking about how the communists, specifically the Soviets, they are arguing that if you join the Soviet bloc, you can be a part of a perfection that is yet to come. If you join this proletariat revolution, if you become a part of this dictatorship of the proletariat, that means that you can reach this communist secular utopia. What American modernizers are basically arguing is America has already reached this paradise. And the way we have reached this paradise is focusing on reaching full employment, focusing on proper fiscal management, and increasing economic growth through relying on equality, freedom, and that is what is attracting certain global South countries to the United States model of modernization. How do we use modernization? Or a more specific question is, how do historians, historians like you, use modernization? Modernization theory is one of the most powerful theories that helps Americans, specifically cold warriors, but also policymakers after World War II. It helps them articulate not just what the position the United States should take in the world, but also how these decolonizing nations should consider their next steps, right? And so when I study modernization theory, I study it as a moment, as a process, as well as an idea. I study its power in the United States, but also its power in other countries. My specific interest is in U.S.-India relations. So I look at modernization theory as it relates to thinkers in India. So even before India's independence in 1947, even before modernization theory becomes this big, important thing in the 1950s, 1960s, Gandhi and Nehru in India are debating what the future of India should look like as an independent state. While Gandhi believes in relying on a more traditional Indian model of development that is really focused on what makes India, India, what makes Indian traditions good, what makes Indian religion good, Nehru is looking mainly westward. He's also intrigued by the Soviet model of development, but mainly he is looking westward. And he is really relying on this idea that scientific development, that rationality, that democracy, that is what's going to bring India to the forefront. That is what's going to bring India at the same level as the British Empire. That makes me think of the urban as, you know, imagining an urban future not just a way to organize space, but also an integral part of this modernizing imperative. 
There definitely is. So Nehru's focus, at least in India, right, Nehru, as well as people who support Nehru in the 1950s, what they're interested in is not just dams, which is what I focus on, but they're vastly interested in deforestation and urbanization in developing proper bureaucracies. And so urbanization is largely synonymous with modernization, at least for many Indians in the late 20th century. And I think this is also true of many American modernizers as well. But the key thing that brings urbanization and modernization together, in my mind, and what brings people like Nehru in India with thinkers like David Lilienthal, who runs the Tennessee Valley Authority in the United States, together is this idea that democracy, consensual democracy, liberal democracy is the best way to move forward. A real focus on egalitarianism. And obviously that is put forth a lot in theory and in practice, it doesn't always work out, right? Yeah. A lot of states claim to be consensual democracies, including the United States, but there are obviously huge blind spots. But that is one of the major focuses of modernization theory in India. If you want to focus on urbanization, deforestation, infrastructure development, agricultural productivity, land reform, all of this stuff, you need consensual democracy. Yeah. And that's one of the major things that India is focused on after World War II or after its independence. Before we move on to our third and final question, because you work specifically on dams, could you give us a sense of what your thoughts about dams are right now? Yeah, so I think consistently throughout Indian history, at least throughout the state of modern India from 1947 to the present, regardless of which political party has been in power, regardless of how state politics looks, political officials have consistently turned to dams as not just beacons of modernity or like symbols of modernity or, or symbols of Indian greatness, which is very abstract, but specifically a concrete path forward towards economic growth. Because dams in India provide not just irrigation, not just hydropower, they also provide ways to store water. They are really, really important for a lot of different Indian states. So this begins as early as the 1950s with dams like the Bakra Dam, but it goes well into the late 20th century, well into the 21st century as the dam that I mainly study, which is the Sardar Saravar Dam, or basically mm, the series yeah. of dams in the Narmada River Valley, which Arundhati Roy and Meda Patkar write about. This series of dams, specifically the Sardar Saravar, is envisioned by Nehru himself in the 1950s by those in Nehru's administration. But the Sardar Saravar Dam is only completed, only inaugurated in 2017 under Modi. And Modi himself today is talking about dams in a very similar way to how Nehru talks about it, despite the fact that, you know, Nehru and Modi's politics are very far apart. So basically dams, at least by this political elite, by this technological elite in India and in the United States, are seen as a great step forward. In the 1990s, the World Bank, after this big report on the Narmada Dam, they sponsored this World Commission on Dams. And the report comes out in 2000. And people who are anti-big dams, especially the, these protesters in India and other global South countries, they cheer this on because basically what it advocates is smaller dams, other types of water development or hydrological development instead of big dams like the Sardar Saravar or Three Gorges because of how much they displace people, they displace millions of people, how much they destroy the local flora and fauna, as well as the contributions they actually make to climate change and other things. So that's really what the major conflict is about dams in India. How will modernization save the world? The problem is I have two answers to this. Studying modernization will save the world because we can reevaluate why Americans as well as other countries make the policy decisions they do with regards to infrastructure, with regards to development. That is how it'll save the world. Why certain decisions are made and how they're made and the impacts they have on lower classes, the impacts they have on minorities, the impacts they have on environments. 
But my second answer is modernization theory in general will not save the world. In fact, it might actively harm the world. So a big part of my dissertation is pulling modernization theory into the 1980s and into the 1990s because the general scholarship accepts or argues that modernization theory lost its favor in the 1970s. Basically, with the turn to market fundamentalism, or as some call it, neoliberalism, people in the United States, as well as Western countries who are arguing for these big statist projects, this massive investment, this massive amount of foreign lending, they are losing their power. And then with the election of people like Reagan and Thatcher, you see a reorientation towards free markets. It's free trade. It's liberalization. And so the biggest Jedi mind trick that the World Bank sort of pulls in the 1980s, and that's what I'm sort of trying to argue and why modernization theory will not save the world, is that, hey, we've been pro-free trade this whole time. Uh, Obviously, sure, we're going to keep funding these giant projects. Sure, we're going to maybe reevaluate how much we fund. But we've been pro-liberalization this whole time. And so the reason in my dissertation that I call modernization theory insidious and dangerous is mainly because even though policy experts think that modernization theory sort of died down with the last big status projects, it actually didn't. It just transformed itself, mainly because modernization theory is not just about how to differentiate the other or how to define the other, specifically those traditional societies, but it's also a way to articulate what is American? What is modern? What is us? So when the definition of us changes with the time, especially with the end of the Cold War, modernization theory just transforms. It's sort of like the Greek monster, the Hydra. As soon as you try to like cut off one head, two heads grow in its place. And so the reason I don't think it'll save the world is because at this point in time, it is very hard to cut off all of the heads of modernization theory and burn its neck. It's basically impossible. It's a brutal analogy, but I think I think it definitely works in, in its efficiency in describing the insidious ways in which it stays on and it keeps on victimizing the same people that it did once. Yeah, like for example, I don't want to stretch the point too much, but this is not my work, but a lot of scholars have looked at how modernization theory helps American cold warriors, right, in the 1950s and 60s sort of articulate what is quote unquote wrong with societies like China, like India, like those in Africa. But at the same time, when they do that, they start to look inward and start thinking, oh, how can we change small aspects of American culture and society that are also backward? And that immediately turns to, quote unquote, inner cities, minority majority cities. It becomes a tool of domestic policy as well. It's so big and so all encompassing and starts to seep into so many different aspects of American foreign and domestic policy of different policies across the world that it's hard to define this one thing. So just like it is hard for historians to define what is modern, it's like a loaded term with a bunch of other terms like capitalism, neoliberalism. It is really hard to sort of pin down where modernization theory is. It's literally like a snake that you can't catch. You like to think, okay, the current iteration I'm studying begins in the 1950s. But then you start thinking, oh, but they're drawing from the 19th century. They're drawing from the 18th century. In fact, they can you can bring this back even further. And then because you can pull it back so far, it just makes logical sense that it's not something that's going to die easily. It yeah. just makes logical sense that it's not something that is going to stay within one specific realm. And I think what's really interesting about neoliberalism as well as modernization theory as terms or as processes or as phenomena is that they're both mutually reinforcing. Like one aspect of it reinforces another aspect. So 
people who are neoliberals will say, you know, free markets are good because they encourage entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship and free trade is good because it encourages free markets and democracy. Like it's all it's all this powerful reinforcing ideology. It's the same thing with modernization theory. American modernizers during the Cold War, as well as after when it sort of loses its steam, they're still arguing, hey, modernization theory is good because it encourages these states that are backward or specifically at earlier stages of history, it gives them a path forward. It gives them, you know, building blocks they can follow. But that itself reinforces this idea that there is a linear trajectory towards the zenith of progress. And that is something that you're taught to not think like when you write history. So that's what's so interesting and insidious about it. Well, I think that's a great prophetic and, well, historiographical note to end on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Varsha, so much for that brilliant discussion. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.